The Water Values Podcast is sponsored by the following market-leading companies and organizations. Xylem, Let's Solve Water, by the American Water Works Association, dedicated to the world's most important resource, by Black & Veatch, Building a World of Difference, by Ziptility, Helping Utilities Capture More, Better, and Accurate Data from the Field, and by Intera, Geoscience and Engineering Solutions. This is Session 162. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thank you so much for joining me. Last episode we had George Hawkins. What a great interview that was. And today we have another marquee industry player, Seth Siegel, who recently released his latest book, Troubled Water, joins us. You'll really like this interview with Seth. Even if you disagree with him, he'll at a minimum get you thinking. So before we get to the interview, a little housekeeping First and foremost, another hearty thank you to our sponsors, and I'd like for you to do me a favor. If you work for any one of the sponsors or if you work with any of the sponsors, please, please, please thank your boss or thank your contact at the sponsor's firm and tell them that you appreciate their leadership in the industry through the sponsorship. If you're interviewing for a job with one of the sponsors, again, please thank them and let them know that you appreciate their thought leadership. Podcast metrics, again, are very hard to deal with because it's hard to tell who's listening unless you, the listener, take action. So if you appreciate the podcast, please, please, please let the sponsors know. And as long as you let the sponsors know that you're appreciating their support of the water industry, education, and thought leadership we're providing here, why not leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast directory you're accessing the podcast on. That would be greatly appreciated and will help others find out about the podcast. Uh, finally, and along the same vein, thank you for those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. We picked up another couple five-star ratings and glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Ambient Sleep says, more wastewater, please. Well, we, we'll we we'll get there, Ambient Sleep. Don't worry. But Ambient Sleep says, love the show. As a treatment and wastewater operator in California, I enjoy the scope of the show. Sometimes I would like you to get more into specifics and not so general, but I understand the time constraints. Love the work and the message. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Ambient Sleep. Really appreciate your support. Really appreciate you leaving the five-star rating and review. Thank you so much. Also, Beaster37 says, great listen, Really good episode to kick off 2020. Interesting discussion on utility optimization as well as the work of Moonshot Missions. Definitely worth 45 minutes of your time. Thank you, Beaster37, for writing such a nice review and for giving us a five-star rating. Really appreciate it. Now it's on to the feature interview with New York Times bestselling author, Seth Siegel. Let's get that water flowing. Well, Seth, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you're on. How are you doing today? Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be on. I'm uh, feeling a little bit frazzled. I've been traveling <laughs> like a madman, and uh, I've got more travel ahead of me, and I've been uh, filling out uh, a visa form for some international travel, and uh, I uh, 
uh, you know, the world of bureaucracy uh, doesn't comport well with me. I, I, like to, I like to flow like the water, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great to have another New York Times bestselling author on, and uh, you fit that bill exactly. So for those listeners uh, who may not have, who may not know about you already, can you tell them or can you fill us in a little on your background and how you got interested in water? My father probably would say about me that I couldn't hold a job for very long because I had a bunch of different careers. I started life as an advertising copywriter, uh, which uh, showed an early interest in uh, putting words on paper. Then I uh, went to law school and spent uh, six and a half uh, – I know you're a lawyer, so six and a half, I would say, <laughs> miserable years as a lawyer <laughs> at, a, at a midtown Manhattan law firm. Uh, and uh, uh, every day that I got closer and closer to being made a partner there, I panicked more and more like, oh, my God, I really have to do this the rest of my life. Uh, one day I had a fabulous idea for a, a marketing company, and I was newly married, and I got my wife's blessing to go ahead, and I started with a partner, and uh, I got very lucky. It turned into be a global, ultimately over a bunch of years, it turned into an international company with offices in cities around the world, lots of employees. Uh, one fine day out of the blue with no prior connection to me or to the automotive industry, the Ford Motor Company called and said, hey, we'd like to buy your company. I said, um, okay. <laughs> it actually took a couple of months to get to, yeah, okay. I said no several times. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but the reason I said okay finally was because I realized it would free me to do what I really wanted to do, which was to be involved in, in public policy matters as an activist. And I had a list of areas that I was interested in. Water was not one of them. But um, little by little, I got interested in water works while, while do, doing this sort of do-good or life of mine. And um, when I began learning that water scarcity was an issue that people weren't much thinking about or talking about or planning for, I, I, began, to, I, be, I began to become quite agitated over the idea of what would happen if um, – what would happen if we had these large refugee flows because of suddenly water giving out? And, of course, this was be well before the Syrian civil war and the refugees that were flowing into Europe and all the destabilization that that caused. But it did occur to me that this was going to – this would have really a destabilizing effect on, on, uh, on the Western world particularly. So I got interested. I started writing uh, – reading about it, writing about it. And then one day I thought this might be a good book. I wrote a book thinking I'd sell – you know, 500 copies, 2,000 copies, somewhere in there. And it became a New York Times bestseller. And now it's in, it's, it's uh, out in 50 some odd countries. It's in 19 languages. And uh, it's become quite a, uh, quite a phenomenon. And that book, frankly, then set off me thinking about water from multiple dimensions. And my new book, Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink, uh, was, the, was, the, was the direct descendant of the first water book, Let, Let There Be Water, uh, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. But the new book, Troubled Water, What's Wrong with What We Drink, is really about contaminants in America's drinking water and the realization that these contaminants are fairly universally found in our drinking water with unknown health effects for us. And the book is a, is a call to action by the federal government, state governments, and the local utilities to do more. We need more research. We need more use of technology. We need, frankly, a higher price for water. And um, I would say also uh, a key demand of the book is that we consolidate the just gigantic and unwieldy number of utilities we have in the United States. We have 
over 50,000 water utilities when we probably should have a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand at most. Yeah, I, I definitely want to uh, get into the, the meat of your uh, troubled water today. Uh, I, I am kind of curious about the when when the light flipped on, was it a, you, you kind of indicated slowly. So was there, was there just a, a certain event that really kind of flipped the switch or was this was this just kind of a gradual awakening for to the water sector? There was a specific event. I'm a member of a foreign policy think tank called the Council on Foreign Relations, and I uh, sometimes just randomly attend an event to get myself thinking about something I'd never thought about much before. And there was a presentation by uh, the head of the environmental department at one of the U.S. government's intelligence agencies, and he presented a justly classified report about the coming global threat of water scarcity. This was, oh, I don't know, probably... 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. And um, I left the meeting very, very concerned about the fact that this is something that nobody was talking about. And I, I have a, a couple of U.S. for my policy work, I have a couple of U.S. senators who I regard as dear friends. I called one a couple of days, not more than two or three days after this presentation. And um, he sits on the uh, sits on the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, so I was sure he would know all about this. I called him up. I said, this is very concerning. What are you doing about it? And he confessed to me he didn't even know this was a concern of the intelligence uh, intelligence agencies. And when I realized that even a U.S. senator sitting on a committee like that uh, wasn't aware of this as an issue, I said, this is, this is something I need to do. I'm, I'm pretty good at publicizing and alerting people to issues and it's my job as a citizen activist to uh, to do what I can to to raise awareness. That, yeah. that was the but that was the trigger. That's that, a, present, that, that presentation. Got it. Got it. okay. So let's dig into troubled water. I, I admit I have not read it cover to cover. I've skimmed it uh, in in preparation for for this interview. Um, for example, you have to say to the listeners that you plan to read every uh, word, and I do. Including every word of the footnotes, bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I am a lawyer, Seth, so uh, <laughs> we read everything cover to cover. Uh, that's what. But um, yeah, and I certainly will will read it. Uh, I when when I kind of skimmed it, the thing I took away, uh, you know, you you mentioned a number of things, but what I take away is weak governance. You know, whether that's EPA. Uh, whether that's the, just the sheer number, the fragmentation that uh, exists in the, um, in the sector. With that background, uh, can you give us a, uh, uh, some color about how, what your perspective on water governance is that's causing all these, these issues? You know, Dave, when I was a practicing lawyer, I was in the litigation department, and I, I, I think I would say objection, uh, compound question. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that would be sustained. <laughs> I bet it would be. So let's, so let's, uh, so let's um, deconstruct the question into its con constituent parts if we can, okay? Um, so first of all, you, you are right that we have a governance problem and starts at the EPA, the regulator. The EPA has not been doing much of anything in drinking water for a very long time. And the, the effect of that is that, uh, that although there are about 120,000 chemicals of one kind or another approved for commerce in the United States, only about, not only, uh, but it could be only or, or not only, but 70 of them, only as an editorial word, I want to be factual, 70 of them are currently regulated by the EPA. 
And what regulated means is that um, utilities have to monitor for those chemicals. They have to, if they find them, they have to reduce the volume or concentration of them down to a certain number. And then after that, it doesn't have to be purified out of it completely, although I argue that some of the numbers that the EPA have chosen are scientifically not valid as being uh, health conscious. They should be lower. But, but be that as it may, um, the utility has to bring it down to that level, and then they can distribute the water. Um, so the first argument is that there just aren't enough contaminants that are being regulated there. We know that there are other contaminants in our drinking water, many, many, many other contaminants. Um, we know that some of them are positively a health hazard, like uh, PFOA, which is found widely in America's water. We know that it is a health hazard. We know that it's linked to testicular cancer, kidney cancer, ulcerative colitis. We know that it's a, a health hazard for pregnant women. We know that it causes birth defects. And, but this is just one of many, many contaminants that are found in water that the EPA has not regulated. And, and when people point to, oh, the Trump administration, bad about this, bad about that, uh, I will leave the argument about the uh, Trump EPA to the side by only saying that the same state of facts vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, EPA management doesn't change regardless of who's in the White House and who's running Congress. Um, as shocking as it is to me personally that there are only 70 chemicals that are that, that are designated as contaminants, as shocking as that should be to all of your listeners, by far the more shocking figure is the last time the EPA has regulated any chemical is 23 years ago. And what that says is is that the EPA has defaulted to a to a cost benefit analysis rather than a public health focus. So we start with we start with the EPA is that the EPA is broken. And in the book, I, I make the suggestion that if the EPA can't get its act together and they may not be able to, that we should transfer control and regulation of water from the EPA, uh, where I believe historically it was misplaced. I can get into that if you're curious about why I think that's the case, but where it's mis been, was misplaced by Congress when the Safe Drinking Water Act was passed in 1974 and that it should be moved over to Health and Human Services. So that's first. Second level layer is the state governments. Uh, the state governments play a role that they are supposedly administering the utilities within their states and transferring the key information to the EPA. They're supposedly supposed to be fining um, utilities that are underperforming uh, from a health perspective. But what happens is really is that government doesn't do a very good job of regulating government. And this leads us to what I talk about the mayors, is that mayors don't want to be rebuked by offices of the local governor, and the local governor does not want to rebuke the local mayors, regardless of political party. And so what happens is that there's a whole large, large, large number of utilities that have not once in a while violations of the concentration uh, levels of, uh, of, of, of contaminants, but repeatedly, year after year after year, the same contaminant, year after year, because they don't want to spend the money to clean it up or fix it up. Um, and so, and the states don't find them, and so the communities continue to distribute water that's clearly not in the public's health. So you have the states, mostly, not every state, New Hampshire does a good job, California does a good job, uh, New Jersey intermittently does a good job, but not every state does a good job. 
Uh, by the way, those are not the only states that do a good job, but there are others. But many states don't do a good job, and many states do very little other than just convey statistical data to the EPA. So they need to do more. And then, then at the local level, the vast majority, 85% of American utilities, are controlled by the local municipality, which means that the whoever the elected official is, a mayor, a city manager, a city council, they have no incentive to raise water rates because consumers will see that as a tax. And, and mayors and other elected officials don't get popular by raising prices, raising taxes, and so they – they do their best to, to keep it to keep those prices low, but in so doing, they discourage utilities which they control from raising water fees, except in one case which I'll talk about in a second. And what they the way they balance the book, so to speak, is they keep prices low by not getting contaminants out of the drinking water, by not hiring the staff that might be the very best staff possible. They do that by not buying the off-the-shelf best technologies that are available. They do that by not fixing broken infrastructure in the ground, which leads to enormous, enormous water losses, as much as 45 percent in some parts of the country, but routinely a third of, of drinking water lost in broken pipes and pumps. <clears throat> and so we, we have this, this very bad system. And then finally we have the utilities, which have misaligned incentives. They are given the incentive of – of keeping costs down. They say, yes, of course, they want to distribute water, but they don't necessarily have to distribute the very best water. They just have to distribute water that is legal under the EPA rules or water that they can get away with from the state government. And legal, what we've come to see, does not equal safe. Yeah. So, this is, so this is a sort of a, 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 a large comprehensive view of this all. But, but what, what, we, what we see here is a system where... Um, in the main, the water prices are too low, except in one case, which I said I would, I would come back to in a moment, which I would do now, which is in some cases water prices are too high. But it doesn't mean that the water is necessarily better because what has happened all over the country, and this is a consumer fraud that should get somebody indicted and sent to jail, but what's happened all over the country is that when communities start to lose population or they lose a key industry and their tax base is becoming eroded, what they end up doing is they raise prices that they, they can raise fees that they can raise, and one of them is water fees. So if the price doubles or triples or quadruples, consumers could logically think that what they're going to be getting is better quality water, better infrastructure for their money. But what actually happens is the large amounts of the water fees, water and sewer fees, are diverted to City Hall for general uh, budgetary uses. And, and that that is that I regard as, as is as bad or worse than too low water fees. Yeah. You've, you've said a mouthful, so let's unpack a little bit, right? So on the EPA, the, the issue is that they haven't done enough. One part of the political spectrum says we should do away with the EPA altogether. Um, so yeah, what, what – I'm not a buyer into that concept. Yeah. I, mean, that, that, I mean, there is that, – that's – the EPA does very valuable things uh, uh, and, and some parts of the EPA – uh, but but people may politi politically use it as a punching bag. My argument is that not that the EPA is doing too much. Most of the people say do away with it as they, people consider it to be too intrusive. My argument is the EPA, in terms of drinking water, is not just, just simply not doing enough because although they have the power to do things, they're not doing it. And although um, they have 
the scientific staff to do certain things. They're not using them appropriately. Yeah, I, I think part of the problem is that is that water is a hard thing to explain to the population. It's a, it's a hard, uh, it's difficult to, to sell because the effects that you've identified take place over a long period of time. They're not immediate. We're used to a, kind of a immediate gratification and it's, it's harder to, to make that sale. It's, you know, as, as Manny Teodoro says, it's, we need to uh, convert or find ways for political officials to create a, a credit claiming opportunity rather than a blame avoidance opportunity. Yeah, but uh, by the way, you're right about what you say. And in addition, not only is it that the the health hazards uh, aggregate over time, but that what also is the case is that the broken system is out of sight, out of mind. The pipes are underground. Right. So you, you don't see them cracking. You don't see them leaking. You don't understand necessarily that your community is contributing mightily to climate change because the fact that the water that you're getting after it's been transported and cleaned at very significant uh, energy costs, um, that that significant parts of that water is lost. I mean, I'll take the example of California. I don't know. I know you're based in Indiana. I don't know Indiana's numbers, but I'll tell you California's numbers. California is a large, large state, lots of air conditioners, lots of lights, lots of computers, lots of, you know, electric cars being charged. 18% of the state's entire electricity usage is used to transport, clean, and heat water. 18%. Yet about a third of the state's water is lost to leaks. So if you want to save on carbon fuels, about the best thing you could do fast is fix your broken infrastructure. Because if you could reduce that, significantly reduce, and you can, reduce that number from a third down to under 10%, you would save four, five, maybe even six percent of the state's total gross electricity uh, consumption, which comes at the cost of burning a lot of coal and and uh, natural gas and other other carbon fuels. So let's let's talk about um, the local government aspect. One of the things that that you identify in troubled water is that the municipal model of utility ownership took root a long time ago. Can you talk a little about the genesis of that? Because um, I, I, I'm, I'm just very interested in how uh, the municipal government model became so dominant, whereas in the energy, like the electrical space, uh, it's primarily an investor-owned game. Yes. So 15% of American utilities are investor-owned and the rest are municipally owned. In the water sector. Uh, however, when when... In the water sector, yes. I'm uh, sorry, uh, drinking water uh, utilities, yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, people assume that this is the only way it can be. And some political candidates, in fact, say that 15% of private ownership is 15% too much, that it should all be in public hands. But but there is a couple of reasons not to do that, but we, we can talk about that next. The, the genesis of this is um, that when, when cities started uh, being formed in the United States, um, what ended up happening was that in the almost universally, private water companies were established. First, people dug wells, or if they were near a river, they would just pump water out of a river or a lake. But then what mostly happened is that from the local community wells, they got either overtaxed or they got polluted, and you needed something more sophisticated. Plus, once pipes became available, you needed to have pipes to convey 
the water throughout your city. So private companies were created to do that, you know, sort of, you might call it a public-private partnership. They, they got their rights under uh, a charter, usually from the state uh, government, and then they would have the rates set for them by a rate commission, similar to the Railroad Rate Commission. And I just want to just parenthetically, since Hamilton became a very hot show and Aaron Burr is back in, <laughs> in uh, you know, public awareness, I, I want to just share with, with your um, listeners that, uh, that one of those private water companies was started by Aaron Burr. And he got a charter from New York State government. And although he and Alexander Hamilton hated each other, Hamilton was appealed to by Burr that this would be a good government idea and that Hamilton uh, signed on to Burr's petition to get the rights to start New York's first uh, drinking water company, New York City's first drinking water company. And if I could just go a little deeper into this rabbit hole for a second, that it turned out that it was first, it was one of many times that Aaron Burr tricked Alexander Hamilton because he actually used the money that he got from, from the investors to create a bank. And I put that all together to tell you that if you can just visualize for a second the logo of the Chase Bank, which looks like a four-sided something or other, you, you know, what is that four-sided thing with the hole in the middle? That was a, that's a stylized water pipe, and the Chase logo is a callback to the fact that the Chase Bank started by Aaron Burr was started actually as a water company, and, um, and, that, and that the creation of that, of that water company that failed because Burr stole, basically took the money out of it to, to put it into a, a banking program uh, was the start of uh, the continuation of great enmity between the two men, which ended up not just in the, in the death of Hamilton, but the creation of one of the greatest shows ever on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 you're exactly right, because I remember reading that the first time in Jim Salzman's book, Drinking Water, and, yeah, and, exactly. seeing, and yeah. seeing, that, seeing that there. So I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead uh, and yeah, continue well, on. Well, anyway, so, so that what happened was by the year 1800, 1820 or so, um, every city started getting uh, water companies, and then it's continued along around by the 18 post-Civil War period, 1870s, 1880s. Pipes started being laid throughout cities with pumps, and and sophisticated water systems started being born. <clears throat> what then happens is that mayors become very jealous of the um, of the <clears throat> cash flow of these water companies because tax revenues rise and fall with the economic cycles. But water fees re remain constant. And, and therefore, they said to themselves, or their city council said to them, this is crazy. Why are we allowing the cash flows that we could be getting from our water to be eaten up by, by um, private sources? So little by little, they became either condemned or clawed back or bought out. And in large measure, um, they, they were conveyed over to uh, municipal management. Then, then a handful of years ago, a couple of decades ago, when Europe went through a privatization uh, program, uh, a bunch of European companies like Suez and Veolia came to the United States and started arguing, well, why, why can't the private sector do this here as well? And, and that led to the birth not just of Suez and Veolia, but American Water and and other, uh, and other uh, private investor-owned water companies. Um, the, the other thing to say is about these private water companies is that, at least statistically speaking, and this, again, you mentioned Manny Teodora earlier, who's a wonderful 
um, professor and studies the water sector uh, with some great insights, he, he, he came to the realization that about a, uh, that private water companies end up with about a quarter uh, fewer health code violations levied by either the state or the EPA than do the public uh, municipality-driven water system. So clearly, um, there's an argument, argument to be made that, that the industrial utilities uh, should not only be anathematized and demonized, but that they should be welcomed into the equation. Yeah, and and that's a great segue because what, the other thing I was going to, the, the direction I was going to take this next was it's not just the municipally owned utilities that are, are getting, it's the small ones, right? The smaller the utility, the more likely it is to have uh, a violation of drinking water standards. And that feeds right into the consolidation uh, uh, game. So can you talk a little about how consolidation can help solve or be a, a a tool in the toolbox to help solve the the problem with our drinking water. So, so I mentioned earlier that we have this crazy unwieldy number of uh, fifty one thousand plus utilities in the drinking water utilities in the United States. It's just utterly insane. So, um, uh, so what happened? And, and just so that your listeners don't think that we're just talking about the most rural of rural communities. In fact, we're not. The, the very most rural areas are are where people are spread out, they mostly water from private water wells, and, and they're not even into a, they're not even tied to a utility at all. But there, for example, are even are 200 separate drinking water utilities just in Los Angeles County. There are 7,500 drinking water utilities in the state of California. I, I mean, it's just an unwieldy mess. So, uh, what happens is that there are 40 between 46 and 47,000 utilities in the United States that have 10,000 um, ratepayers or fewer. And you have about 20-odd thousand that have 500 or fewer. And so there's no way in the world that these very small systems can get the money together to, you know, to hire the best people, to buy the best technology, to fix the, the infrastructure. So what ends up happening is that they allow themselves to fall into this pattern of, of, um, of not being uh, public health focused. They end up getting the large majority of the violations that are reported every year by the EPA. There are about 80,000 of them registered every year by the EPA, and more than half of them are just in the, on very, very small communities. And, um, and what ends up happening is, is that they can't get out of this cycle because they just don't have the money to do it. So if we would consolidate utilities, we whether, again, whether publicly owned or privately owned, I'm, I'm actually agnostic as to which it should be, but whether publicly or privately owned, you suddenly have some scale. You can afford to hire more people, different kinds of people, different skill sets. Um, you can afford to have them go off for training, and you can start bringing in consultants. You can start doing all kinds of other stuff vis-a-vis -vis the technology you need. You can start fixing broken infrastructure. It just becomes a virtuous circle. The more people you have um, that are paying water fees, the better. Which is not to say, by the way, that if you have very poor people in your community that we shouldn't come up with some system to allow them to have water um, uh, either at reduced or, or at no price whatsoever. Yeah, isn't isn't the issue uh, – We I think from a rational basis that makes complete sense – the problem, I think, in practice with with the with consolidation, is that nobody wants 
to get consolidated out. They have, they some somehow some of their identity is tied up in that water utility that's serving them, or they think that oh, consolidation means that service is going to get poor and you know stuff like that. I mean, it's it's these. You know, Richard Thaler won a Nobel Prize for economics demonstrating that people do not make rational decisions. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in the water sector. So how do we overcome that kind of fear or that irrational uh, behavior that's going on out there? Well, first of all, vis-a-vis the local pride issue, you are absolutely right, Dave. But but uh, I think that we should uh, encourage everybody to have a really good high school football team <laughs> <laughs> uh, or basketball. You're from Indiana. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Basketball team. I should pander. To you. <laughs> uh, so so I, I, I saw the film Hoosiers. I know, I know what gets you guys up in the morning. So, uh, so um, I, I, I think it's important to uh, just say this local pride thing just goes just so far if, you're, if your local population is – is getting uh, potentially poisoned by the water they're drinking. If their children are developing a variety of endocrine-disrupting uh, ailments, if they're developing ADHD or their IQs are dropping or, or people are getting obese because of, uh, of hormonal disturbances that are created by the water and so forth, it's, it's really it's a price too great to pay. And for the benefit that the local utility gets, as, as one water commissioner said to me from California, you know, how, how much do we have, how much does society have to suffer so that uh, a lot of these water utility people can go off once a year to, uh, to some state capital or somewhere and have a fancy steak dinner, you know, and uh, she's being very dismissive, I think, uh, unfairly in that regard, but, but I understand where her sentiment comes from. So, so the, the first thing is, to, is that once people are aware of the problem, they understand that um, there are solutions. Second of all is there are examples of consolidation um, that have worked phenomenally well, but they're not well publicized. And the third part that your question is, you know, how do we get this change? Well, thank you for doing this podcast, and thank you for focusing on water, and let's, have, let's do this podcast once a week until there is change, because that's exactly why I wrote Troubled Water, What's Wrong With What We Drink. That's exactly why I wrote it. And that is exactly why, you know, when you asked me at the top of the interview, you know, how am I doing today? And I, I should have just said, fine, you know. <laughs> you know, I said I was frazzled. But I'm running around from city to city to city making speech day after day after day because of the fact that I am thinking of myself like Paul Revere. I want to raise awareness. I want to get more people talking about water. And the more that I can get that conversation going – and the more that you can get that conversation going, and the more that each of our listeners or your listeners can get this conversation going, the better we'll be. And I wrote the book in not in heavy-duty engineering terms. You can vouch for this. Not in heavy scientific terms. You don't have to have even a, a, a day of science training or techno- technological training to read, enjoy, and learn from my book. I'm a liberal arts guy, and I wrote it for other liberal arts-type people who are focused on policy concerns. And I believe that my book is a starting point, but not by any means the only starting point for people to educate themselves and hopefully um, hopefully get the story out. I'll, I'll tell you with some great pride, there's a, there's a uh, very wealthy uh, Republican uh, fellow in uh, Texas. Uh, and the reason why I emphasize Republican, because we think of Republicans sometimes being antagonistic to environmental issues. And he, he got my book the week it came out, just, just a few weeks ago. Uh, tracked me down, called me up, and he said, you know, your book is a really important book. And one of the points I make in the book is we should stop thinking of drinking water as 
an environmental issue. We should think of it as a public health issue, and we'll get Republicans and Democrats to say, you know, to lock arms and sing hallelujah together. And, and he said, your book is really important. And he went ahead and he bought 600 copies of the book and distributed them to every single member of Congress and every governor's office. He said, this is a book that people have to be reading. And I think, you know, I think there's a limited number of people out there going to do that. But, but I think that that's exactly the kind of approach that we need. Uh, although I'm speaking next week at MIT uh, in Boston. And um, when uh, some big uh, technologist heard I was going to be speaking at MIT, it's his alma mater. He went out and he bought 200 copies for the first 200 people to register for this conference. So there are people who are seeing my book as an educational tool, but I myself... I'm not waiting and sitting back waiting for people to read the book. I'm out there running around talking about it. And I think, Dave, the more you talk about it, the more your listeners talk about it, the elected officials will catch on pretty soon. Yeah, I, 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 th I think it's we're, we're not quite to the tipping point on the education process, but I, I see definite momentum towards that that role. Um, you know, you're, you're, we could we could talk for hours about this because we've only really scratched the surface and we've been talking over half an hour. Um, you've, you've, you lay out a number of solutions. We've talked about some of that. One of the some of the things that I, I would like to get your perspective on that because I know you've it's a it's a big book, but I want to talk about like land use controls, how how that might play a role in solving this issue. Uh, yeah. And because and, I, I mean, and through skimming the book, I didn't see anything on that. And so there, there actually is. Okay, good. Well, good. Can you can you address that? And in an earlier draft, I had actually had a whole chapter on it. Um, but I decided. You said it's a big book. I want to just um, for for people who were afraid to you know tackle a book like War and Peace of the Brothers Karamazov, uh, thinking that's going to be like a thousand page read. Actually, I wrote the book so that you could start it on Friday late afternoon. And be done with it by lunchtime on Sunday. Um, I, I, I mean it for it to be a quick reading book, although with filled with lots of information and to tools you can use in, in educating yourself and making the case. Um, so, um, so I ended up cutting out um, several chapters that I liked very much, but I wanted to make the book shorter rather than longer. Yeah. Uh, at the cost of comprehensiveness and encyclopedic. Uh, overview. I wanted to make the book uh, readable and so that people would get most of it and then they could fill in the blanks for themselves later. But in terms of land use planning, um, primarily I dealt with, uh, I, I talk about agriculture because that's the place where the greatest concern and need is. To the extent that farms are over fertilizing and using lots of pesticides and herbicides, and then in the, either it, it then gets into the groundwater or it runs off and it gets into lakes and rivers. Um, that's a very, very big concern. And so one of the things that can be done is that downriver communities can be working, the utilities in downriver communities can be working with farmers uh, to help them put in a variety of, of, of uh, devices to block the flow of pesticides and nitrates that are in fertilizer from getting into the water supply. And this is, thank goodness, the last farm bill that got passed there was uh, some fair amount of money that was voted for doing exactly this. Farmers and utilities can jointly apply for a grant. And I have a suspicion that, um, again, once the publicity of this grows, that this is good for cities, this is good for the public health, and this is very good for farmers, and it's good for soil conservation as well. So, so this is one of these, there's no, nobody who's harmed by this, everybody's benefited by this. And I think there'll be a lot more of it. In terms of other land use planning, 
things that you're absolutely right that I don't get into, like, for example, uh, stormwater runoff, I just mentioned in passing, or the fact that when there's a torrential rain, you know, there's lots of new tools to absorb that rain and to dribble it into the sewer system so that it's not an overflow. But, but I, I think, if I may say, although those are very important issues and things that obviously I know a fair bit about, um, I didn't want to distract the reader from what I regard as the top handful of issues that we really need to fix the problem. Once we have more research, once we have more technology, once we have higher prices, and once we have consolidation of the utilities, once we have the big Ford handled, I don't really then care whether it's the EPA that's controlling water or the Health and Human Services, and because the public will figure it out, and the public will figure out all these other issues of land use planning once they understand that their children are, uh, and their fetuses and their mothers and fathers who are immunosuppressed because they either have illnesses or they're on chemotherapy, uh, people will figure this out pretty quickly. The starting point for me is to raise awareness, and once that awareness has been raised, that's when I am sure we're going to have a change in policy. Yeah, and you've done a great job raising awareness. Um, what's your leave-behind message? In a democracy, citizens are slow to move but that once empowered, great and mighty changes occur. And if I can talk about, um, uh, without by any means thinking myself and my book, The Equal of This, I'd like to just talk about for a moment a book that launched the environmental movement in the United States, for better or for worse. And that is, and that was reflective, I believe, of the way that citizens get engaged. The story is that um, in 1962, fall of 1962, a woman named Rachel Carson comes out with a book that's called Silent Spring. It was an indictment of pesticides in general and DDT in particular. And the book's title, Silent Spring, she says we're going to have a, a spring sometime where there'll be no birds chirping and no bees buzzing because we've killed them all off by inadvertently using these pesticides. And whether she was scientifically strictly correct or not is not really what's important because I'm talking about arousing citizens. Um, there was no environmental movement then. There was conservation organizations, but no environmental movement. But this gets into the popular consciousness. How? Well, you know who starts reading that book? The media starts reading the book, and mayors start reading the book. But most important of all, moms start reading the book. And those moms start agitating, and little by little, the environmental movement is created, such that by April 22, 1970, the first Earth Day occurs, and 40% of all Americans, students, homemakers, workers, retirees, 40% of Americans participate in one or more Earth Day activities. But one person who did not participate in an Earth Day activity on April 22, 1970, was President Richard Nixon. He was not an environmentalist. He did not support Earth Day activities. And even so, Dave, even so, on December 2nd, 1970, less than eight months after Earth Day, and just two weeks longer, or three weeks longer than eight years following the creation of, of, of the publication of her first book, uh, Silent Spring, Richard Nixon, by executive order, creates the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, some of you listeners may love the EPA, some of them may hate the EPA, but what this reflects is that citizens aroused get remarkable results. Even an anti-environmentalist president like Richard Nixon sees that the public is moving and he needs to respond. The same exact thing here. There's just so many 
filters that we want to put on our faucets. There's just so many pictured filters we want to buy. Let's get this right. Let's protect our children's health. Let's give our country a happier, better outcome at a price that is affordable for everybody. And we will have a great, great uh, future from that. You're certainly doing terrific work. I really applaud you for your your energy and your efforts. So thank you so much. I appreciate the, the time you've carved out for us today. Dave, could I also just say I'm also very active on Twitter. I know not everybody's a Twitter follower, but for those listeners who are, um, I invite you to follow me because I talk about, I tweet about water issues virtually every day. I'm at Seth M, like Mary Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. I have a website, which is www.troubledwater.us.com.us. Uh, you can contact me through the website, and I would love to have a dialogue with any or all of your listeners. I'd love to enlist people into this work or answer their questions or get into a heated debate. Um, and I think that, that this is not, yes, I have a lot of energy, and yes, I'm running around, but it can't possibly be solved, no matter how much energy I have. It can't possibly be solved or changed just by me doing all this. We need to have lots of people engaged in this. Hopefully you, Dave, as well, your law partners, and uh, and hopefully all of your listeners, too. My book is Troubled Water, What's Wrong With What We Drink. It's a starting point for how people can learn about the issues. Yeah, and that's where you go to find out more about Seth Go to and, and the work he's doing. More power to you. You're doing great. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with us today, and I hope you do great. Keep, keep up the good work. All right. Thank you, David. Thank you for this podcast. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye, Seth. What a great interview by Seth. You know, his passion just bleeds through, and it's it's really great to see someone uh, with, with who cares that much about the water industry and making sure that we all have clean, safe drinking water. Well, what did you like about the interview? Let me know by leaving a comment on the show notes. You can access those at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues and tweet at me using my handle at DTM1993. You can email me at david at thewatervalues.com and you can sign up for the newsletter at thewatervalues.com. Thank you again for tuning in and a huge thank you to our sponsors again Sponsors of the Water Values podcast include the following market-leading companies and organizations. Xylem, the American Water Works Association, Black & Veatch, Ziptility, and Intera. Thank you so, so much. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me well thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and nothing in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney client relationship with you or with anyone else additionally nothing in this podcast should be considered a solicitation for professional employment I'm just a lawyer that finds water issues interesting and that believes greater public education is needed about water issues. 
And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water.